All right. Have you turned to Judges chapter 10 yet? We're going to be in Judges 10, starting at verse 6 today. Now, if you looked at your bulletin, you may have noticed that there are quite a few verses that we're going to look at. And I've kind of been debating whether there's any way around reading 68 verses. 68. If you thought last week was long, this is longer by like six verses. Okay? We are going to read it all, but we're going to read it in chunks. Okay? So we're doing something a little bit backwards. Typically, we'll come up, um, we'll read the word, and then pray, and then the sermon will follow. This week, we're going to move through these sections of the sermon and um, we'll read, we'll read, a, read, a, read a bit, and then talk about it a little bit. So um, it's a good reason to just keep your Bible open the whole time, so you can follow along. Because even though we're not doing it in our typical fashion, that doesn't mean that reading the Word is any less important than it was last week or weeks before. So the, still, the most important thing we're going to do today. It's really important that we get together and sing. It's really important we get together and pray. But the most important thing we're going to do today is look at God's Word today, because this is where He has spoken clearly to us. So, we're going to start here. I'm going to actually just go ahead and pray, and then give a little bit of introduction, and then we'll move through some of these sections. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that you, the king of our hearts, the king of all things, are a king of grace. Not a king that works deals and negotiates and and takes bribes, but rather one who freely gives everything that you intend to give. You give based on grace. Boy, that's a hard thing for us to learn every moment of every day, Lord. The breath that we're breathing right now, the the seats that we're sitting on, I mean, everything that we're experiencing is an extension of your grace, your free gift to us. So help us this morning, Lord, as we see Jephthah's story and we see the tragedy of really his whole life from beginning to end, would you teach us how essential the ingredient of your grace is to our understanding you and to our living in a world that reflects, in a way in the world that we might reflect you well. So we ask for your help now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the big idea we want to get across this morning as we're talking about allying with the king of grace is that our hearts are initially allied to the culture around us in many, many ways. There's all sorts of strands of the culture that influence how we see the world and how we act in it. That's the first problem that we're coming up against. The second is that we need to realize that this king of grace requires that our hearts ally to him according to his grace and not according to any kind of works. The works come after, just to give a little, you know, segue, or not segue, a little footnote in here about works, because we certainly don't think that I can just say, okay, Jesus saved me, and I'm going to live like I always lived before. The works that God has prepared for us are prepared for us in Christ, and we are called to walk in them after putting our faith in him. Does that make sense? We, we become right with God by looking to Christ and seeing that what he has done is the whole effort of salvation. And in seeing Christ, we put our faith in him, we turn from our sin because he has regenerated us, he's given us new life because of what he's done at the cross. And so we cannot say in any way, as Paul mentions, there's no boasting before God about things that we've done. 
Because even the things that we do in our Christian life in response to what Jesus has done, God has prepared those beforehand for us according to Ephesians so that we might walk in them. So what we're talking about today as we think about allying ourselves with the king of grace is most importantly that from start to middle to finish, everything in your life is all by grace through faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we find that in scripture alone to round off the five solas. I think I got them all there. So for 68 verses we're going to read today, we're going to take that different approach. We're going to read sections at a time and comment as we go. And you'll see those sections are divvied up in your bulletin for you, by basically by the three chapters. And then we're going to revolve in each of those uh, three chapters, we're going to revolve around two different conversations that occur in each portion. So the nation of Israel is going to embrace far more idolatry during this cycle than they have yet. So let's go ahead and read, starting at verse 6, and we will read to verse 18 and then pause. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Do you see that there's some additional language in here to emphasize how serious this oppression was? This was not the normal cycle of what we've seen over and over again in the first um, nine and a half chapters that we've read so far. Things are far worse. They were crushed and oppressed. And then this last phrase in verse 9, they were severely distressed. So verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah and the people, the leaders of Gilead said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Well, to back up to verse six here, we see that the nation of Israel has embraced a terrible degree of idolatry. What you'll actually see is that they have worshiped seven different idols this cycle around. Um, and so with that, you can just see that 
the cycles that we've seen over and over again are becoming more, are, they're spiraling more rapidly. There is a, a stronger degree of sin that's being done here. And what's amazing is that at the end of this section, you actually see Israel, though they have sinned so greatly, the repentance is even deeper than we've seen before. They realize something amazing about the Lord. Now, it's been a while since I gave you a Calvin quote, and so I thought I needed to give you one today. So this is Calvin. He says, life's more fun when you're not responsible for your actions. You might be thinking, John Calvin, I was talking about Calvin and Hobbes. Okay. That wasn't totally necessary. I just really, really wanted to do that because I thought that'd be funny. Um, It should be no surprise to Israel at all, though, that they're going to be held responsible for their actions. I mean, Calvin's right. Life is more fun when you're not responsible for your actions. If you could just do whatever you want with no consequences... Life would be amazing and easy and simple. Fortunately, it's not that way. And because Israel has embraced these terrible actions of idolatry again and again and again, the Lord has brought on them an enemy to crush them, to bring them very low. So this first section here about allying with the king of grace, we see those two conversations are revolving around searching for salvation. Okay, so this first one is Israel coming before the Lord looking for salvation. And the first negotiation takes place. The cycle that we've been familiarized with is one that they're very familiar with. They understand that they can, after a period of sin and of oppression, they can go to the Lord and break glass in case of emergency and say, Lord, save us, we're in trouble. I can't believe it. These idols that we're worshiping have actually led us to some pretty terrible things. We have seven false gods mentioned, and God's response to them is that he's already saved them, did you happen to count, seven times. Seven's an important number in the Bible, and I don't want to make too big of a deal out of, you know, trying to interpret numbers and things like that, but it is kind of striking because we're halfway through the book and we're just realizing how do they sin over and over and over again? They've become really good at it. You know, seven's an important number because it's the number of what? Does anybody know? completion or perfection and in one sense their sin has become super complete they have done a really good job at doing a really bad thing and god has saved them these seven times over and over and over again his response is basically why are you calling out to me call out to the gods you've chosen to replace me and here we have the lord's commentary not only on the chapter that we're looking at but really the whole book You selected idols for yourselves, so I've put them to the test. You really ought to know whether or not they can save you, right? It's an important thing for us as we examine the idols of our own hearts. You need to remember Tim Keller's definition of idolatry. Idolatry happens whenever we look to something else for our identity, our happiness, or our purpose. Something else that is not God that we think can do a better job at completing our purpose, identity, or our happiness than the Lord can. This is a very simple thing for us to grab onto, though it's very difficult for us to live on a daily basis. But the simple truth of it is that the creator has created you for a purpose. He has created you for joy and for fulfillment and for happiness and for purpose. And it's only in him that we will find that. But so often we turn to other things, and that is when we commit idolatry. We say, this thing will make me happy, whatever that might be. 
Well, Israel's complaint sounds like the same script that they've had over and over and over again. But after hearing these words from the Lord, where he says, hey, look, you've got these idols. Why don't you go ahead and call out to them? The response is fantastic, and it shows the grace of the king, the true king of grace, in their lives, working in their hearts, because they realize we have sinned. And they say the best line Israel as a nation has said in the whole book, do it to us as you see, as whatever seems good to you. Do to us whatever seems good to you. See, this repentance, this genuine repentance, revolves around recognizing who God is and what they've done and seeing that they don't have a leg to stand on. They don't have something to offer to God. And in this first negotiation, they don't say, hey, we'll do this, this, or this if you save us. They just simply say, Lord, you're God. Whatever you think is good, go ahead and do it. We really want you to save us, but we recognize that we have nothing to offer you to convince you. And then the amazing thing after that is that after they said that, they put away their idols. It'd be really tempting for us if we were in a mindset to think, God doesn't want anything to do with me. He's not going to help me anymore. I'm out on my own. It'd be really tempting for us to say, so I can pretty, pretty much do whatever I want. I can worship all these idols. I can, I can look for my fulfillment, for my purpose, for my happiness, and wherever else I want to find it. But Israel recognizes that it's better for them to put away these idols, even if God doesn't act. That's real, genuine repentance. They acknowledge that the Lord is the one true God, and yet he has every right to leave them in the mess that they have made. They still put away their idols. They're asking for mercy or for grace, not what they deserve, but the good that God so loves to do for undeserving people. So remember, simple definitions for mercy and grace. Grace is getting a good thing that you do not deserve, and mercy is not getting a bad thing that you do deserve. And this is what the Lord loves to do in the lives of his people. If God has an opportunity to show grace, he is excited to do that. He does not do it begrudgingly. When you repent of your sin, believer, and you say, Lord, please forgive me. I've lied. I've stolen. I've cheated. I've done whatever these things are. It's not as if God says, oh, forgot Jesus did die for that loser. I guess I have to forgive him. He doesn't say that. He delights in forgiveness. He's abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness and faithfulness. He does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. The second conversation that comes after, after this one is um, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11. So let's go to that one. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. So verse 4 brings us back into what we've already read. So, so we, we, what we see from 10, 6 through 18 is the overarching story. And then there's like this little mini flashback with Jephthah's background here. Now we're back to the story. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. 
Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. So we're introduced to a very familiar sounding candidate for a judge of Israel. He's unexpected, he's rejected, he's obscure. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute, and therefore he's been kicked out, by his fam- out of his family by his brothers. His response to this rejection shapes the whole trajectory of his life then. He's surrounded by worthless fellows. These are criminals, cheats, liars. They're people that have been rejected from society just as Jephthah has been. And Jephthah basically becomes the crime boss over all of them. He's not really a model citizen. He's been affected by the ostracizing of his own family and his own decision to lead the band of worthless fellows. So Jephthah's conversation with the Gileites, Gileadites sounds similar to Israel's conversation with God that we saw earlier. He basically says, you rejected me, now you want me back? Gilead agrees to the terms that Jephthah lays out, not only to lead the forces in battle, but to lead the, the whole, the whole um, group of people afterwards when everything's said and done. So Jephthah has been given a great opportunity to turn his life around. And the question that we ask in verse 11 is, how is he going to proceed? Is he going to do well at this? Is he going to take advantage of the opportunity, or will he fall back into the things other than God that have shaped his life? Again, we've labeled this as our culture. Largely, it is our culture that, that shapes and teaches us things about how we should see the world. And the, the challenge for the Christian is to embrace what God's view of the world is over against what our culture decides is best. So that's the second negotiation. Now we come to um, chapter, well, yeah. So this is the, the story shifts here over at verse 12 to what Jephthah is going to do. He's been elected as the leader. So let's read verse 12 through 28 for this second section where we've already searched for salvation. They found it in the Lord and they found their guy is Jephthah. Now there's going to be a looking for success. And this is all Jephthah's doing. He's going to negotiate with the Ammonite king and then he's going to negotiate with God when that doesn't work out for him. So here's 12 through 28 of chapter 11. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away from my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. So he wants land back. So he's got a reason here for why he's attacked. Verse 14, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. You guys getting this geographically? Everybody know exactly what we're talking about here? It's tricky. Just follow along. It's okay that we don't know all the details right now. Verse 19, Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all the people into his hand, the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. 
So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, Israel. And are you to take possession of them, Jephthah says. Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and in its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? I, therefore, have not sinned against you. So this is a really, really important part. I want you to pay attention to this. I have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he said to him. So having allied with the Lord, the true king of grace in the kingless kingdom, and with Jephthah, this outcast leader that they've chosen, Israel's search for salvation, the action shifts over to Jephthah, who begins to look for success. And interestingly, though he's a criminal and a fighter, he decides to negotiate with the king of Ammon. Hardly what we would expect from a crime boss. He opens with the question, why are you doing this? And this is fascinating because we see the human reason behind the nation of Ammon's aggression towards the nation of Israel. We know the divine level that God has said, I'm going to deliver you into the hands of your enemies. But on the human level, there's already this aggression towards Israel. And it's as if God is kind of removing a barrier of protection around his people so that these enemies might get in and, and basically do to Israel what they want. in all of this, God's purpose is to show his people the results of idol worship. That only with him can they truly be happy, find purpose, and actually realize what they were made for. Jephthah gives a brief history lesson that shows Israel is not at fault, and then ends again with those words in 27. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And this is Jephthah's shining moment. If you've wondered, why is Jephthah in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? It's this phrase. It's got to be. Because he recognizes that God is sovereign, that he's control, or in control over everything, and that he alone is the true judge of Israel and of every nation around it. He's made a clear case that the Lord will deliver them. And with the Ammonite king's refusal to listen, the war commences. So while the negotiations didn't really bring too much success, they did have a couple of positive effects. For one, he was standing on a platform to present the truth that God reigns and that he is the true judge. And then for two, that, that proclamation had an effect on the people of Gilead that were going to follow him in the battle. This was a rallying cry. So for us in the gospel, what we have is the good news that Christ has won victory over all sin and all death for us. And we are meant to walk in it. So we ought to encourage each other, especially when we seem weighed down by worldly thinkings or worldly priorities, that Christ has won and we benefit each day from that victory as we walk with him by grace. So don't ever diminish an opportunity to encourage a brother or sister with the gospel. 
In verse 29, we see sort of the climax of the story as we come to Jephthah approaching the Lord in the battle that will follow. This is the most important conversation or the most important negotiation that's going to come up in this story. Read along with me here. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Really, really important to get that. That is a really central idea here in this section. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came home at Mizpah. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I can't take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. He sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel wept year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Well, this is where the tragedy that Jephthah's life already is takes a terrible turn, And this is the climax of the story, the most important part. At verse 29, who is it who makes the first move? Is it the Lord or Jephthah? You can answer that one if you like. It's the Lord, right? The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Remember, in the Old Testament, the coming of the Spirit to Jephthah is the same Spirit that indwells believers today. But at this point in redemption history, the Spirit shows up in order to empower God's people to save God's people from their enemies. So the Spirit of Jephthah is, sorry, the Spirit of God is on Jephthah to accomplish this one act of salvation for God's people. The Lord has given this as a guarantee of success to Jephthah. And so I want you to look at 2 Corinthians for a second here, um, verses verses 21 through 22 of chapter 1. It says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. For us as believers, this means that if you wonder if you're truly his, a question arises of the presence of the spirit in your life. Has God transformed you? Has he made you new? Is he changing you? Has he changed your mind about sin? Is that still going on? And this idea that God establishes us with Christ, anoints us with his spirit, and that the spirit is the seal that guarantees God's work is still true for Jephthah in one sense. When the spirit shows up, it means that God wants him to win. So back to the children's message. Is God asking Jephthah to do something for him so that God would give him victory? No. 
He's not asking that. He's already given the guarantee of victory to him. The Lord has acted. There's no negotiations necessary. He was there when Israel cried out in the first place. He can no longer bear their misery. He was there at Mizpah when Jephthah was selected. He was there when Jephthah negotiated with the king of Ammon. He was, has been given the Holy Spirit freely as a guarantee of the success that Jephthah longs for. And yet with Jephthah's negotiation with the Lord, he essentially draws a connection to the Lord that makes it look like God also has something to gain by Jephthah's bribe. When negotiating with God, Jephthah seems to be leveling with him as though he is able to meet God with something. As if God has something that he needs from Jephthah's life. So C.S. Lewis explains um, this idea of works and our need for the Lord very well. I think it might be in the slide. Okay, good. So C.S. Lewis says, man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. For what can be more unlike that fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power and a cry for help? So all these things are are opposite to each other. And when we approach God, we cannot approach him in a way that says, you have something and I have something. Why don't we trade and we'll both be happy? We have nothing to offer the Lord. Where he has fullness, we have need. Where he is sovereign, we are humble, we are low. Where he is righteous, we have only penitence. We have only to turn to him and hope that he'll forgive us. Where he has limitless power, all we have is a cry for help. Jephthah doesn't understand this. And this becomes the great weakness. This shows, rather, the great weakness of mankind. Our greatest weakness is that we don't know God personally. And from that, the most illogical thing that a creature could do before his creator is to act as if he has something to offer him. Jephthah's vow shows a lack of understanding of God. He hates human sacrifice. It shows the deep-rooted corruption of allying with the culture around him. If I want success, I need to show my God how serious I am about making a rash vow, is Jephthah's mindset. He's negotiated pretty well for himself up to this point. Even though he has had some book smarts about God's history with Israel, he's neglected the character of God. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If the act of purchasing people back for all of eternity at the cross requires simply the relationship between God and humanity being brought back together. How could Jephthah in this moment, and of course Jephthah doesn't know this yet in the point of redemption history, he doesn't know that Christ is going to come and do this, but all throughout the book of the, the, the Old Testament, books, all the books of the Old Testament, God shows his grace, his desire to save his people over and over and over again, not because they've done anything or because there's something great, but simply because he wants to, because he wants to give that gift. The alliance with the Lord is meant to be forged in a relationship. Jesus has revealed himself to us and has saved us at the cross. And he is alive today to be our living hope. There's nothing that we can put, you know, stock in the Lord and say, you know, even on a really bad day, I can remember that I did this really good thing for the Lord or that I always came to church or that I taught Sunday school or I did VBS or I did none of that. All the things that we do in our Christian life are an overflow of what he's done for us. And it can only be that way. He loves us. He gives us grace, that good thing that we do not deserve. 
It's not earned. It's not bartered for. No promises need to be made on our part. Any promises that we would make would just be broken because we're imperfect, because we're still sinful. The offering of our lives is a living sacrifice. If you're thinking about that from Romans 12, holy and acceptable to him comes as our reasonable worship, Paul says. It is reasonable that we should offer our lives to him, not because he said, well, this is what I wanted in the first place, and you know, you got to pay me back. Not any of that at all. But we live in light of the great things that have happened in our lives, right? We choose those big moments. When you, whatever it may be, when you find your career, when you start a family, when you move to a new neighborhood, we live in light of those truths about ourselves. And the deepest truth that can be true of anyone is their relationship with the Lord. And it's true of non-believers. They live in light of their lack of relationship with the Lord. And you can see that because there's an embracing of worldly things and there's, there's just an assimilation with the culture. Whereas what the Lord is calling us to do is to come out of that culture, to not be influenced by, we live here, we're meant to be here to be lights for Christ, yes, but we're not meant to live like the rest of the world. And this is what Jephthah has done in sacrificing his daughter. He doesn't see God's salvation as a delight, as a joy, but as a duty, as though he needs to perform something back to him. For us, seeing Christ's salvation compels us to live for him, not out of duty, but out of delight. So we don't come to church because we feel like we have to. We don't sing loudly for fear that he will be displeased by our apathy. And we don't offer to perform good deeds if he will only agree to help us. The God of the universe did not create in order to engage in deal after deal with the people he created. He created people to be the objects of his grace. We forget that so easily. That's why we read from the Jesus Storybook Bible about gift experts. How Jephthah would have, been, would have benefited, not to mention his daughter would have benefited, from one of those little ones saying to him, Jesus has come to give us a good thing. We don't deserve it, but he loves us. And isn't that wonderful? John Newton wrote these words, Dear Lord, the idol self dethrone, and from our hearts remove, and let no zeal by us be shown, but that which springs from love. Jephthah was zealous to make himself right with God. He was, he was serious about it. He said to his daughter, I've opened my mouth. I have to perform my vow. And his daughter says, yes, you do. Go ahead and do it. And he offers her as a burnt sacrifice. How terrible, how wicked of an idea to think that that's what God wants. But he's zealous. And, and so Newton writes here that that zeal should spring from love, not from selfishness or not from pride or not from our own understanding. Maybe we don't see the Lord in this way. Maybe we, we want to be zealous for what we're supposed to do for him so that we might secure our salvation or make sure that we're safe or have something to say, boy, I don't really know if I'm a Christian, but I no, actually, I, I read the Bible or I pray, I do this, I go to a Christian school, I, go to, I got baptized. You know, you come up with all those lists. And then because of that, because we have that mindset, we so often think that Jesus becomes a killjoy, that what happens is we're missing out on all the great things that the world has to offer. And John Piper, of course, is the guy you got to go to when you think about Jesus being a killjoy. He says, if being Jesus-focused is a killjoy, then you don't know him well. This is a constant temptation for us in a society that offers constant and unlimited entertainment. The problem of Jephthah and the challenge of the Christian is to give less weight to our experiences and the cultural norms around us and more weight to the relationship we have with Christ. Because we look to the things around us and say, satisfy me with entertainment, satisfy me with purpose, satisfy me with whatever. 
And when we do that, we miss out on the better satisfaction that comes from Christ. So how are you doing with that is my question to you. How are you leaning into your relationship with Christ? And maybe a better question is, what are you doing to lean more into growing in your knowledge of Christ? And maybe a better-er question would be, are you doing those things because you want to enjoy him? Or are you trying to make a deal with him? Jephthah had the mindset of making a deal with God. He thought he could pay him off. And he was brought low because he recognized his foolishness. See, he knew that there was going to be somebody who came out. If you look at the Hebrew, the word there is a little bit ambiguous, but he's also talking about a burnt offering here. He wasn't expecting animals to come out. He was expecting a person. Maybe a servant. He would be okay with sacrificing a servant. Maybe one of his brothers. That would just be a benefit to him in his own mind. But instead, it's his daughter. His only daughter. And there's that emphasis there that's the same as when God talks to Abraham, by the way. Get, bring your son, your only son. And here you see the same language again. This is his daughter. Apart from her, she had, he had no other children. So he's searching for success. He's negotiated with God. And now he says, I have to pay off my debt to the Lord. There's nothing else for it. That's all I have to do. I, I, I can't go around it. Because God wants me to perform my vows, right? He wants me to be true to my word. Yes, but not at the expense of breaking an even greater commandment, not to offer your children as burnt offerings or sacrifices. Jephthah does not know the Lord personally. He knows a lot about him. He knows a lot about the history of Israel. But he isn't walking in a relationship with God where, where when he, even if he made this really foolish vow, when he came home and saw his daughter, he should have said, that was really foolish. I shouldn't have said, whoever comes out of my house, I'll offer as a sacrifice. Lord, please forgive me, but I can't fulfill his vow. The Lord would have been pleased with that action. Unfortunately, he moves forward and tries to earn his way with God. And he's left with no family line to preserve his name. The author takes us now to an episode with Ephraim that most likely happened before his return home. So this is searching for satisfaction. First, we have Jephthah and Ephraim. So let's read the first seven verses. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you didn't save me from their land. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life into my own hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. You notice there's no further negotiations. He's done talking. He's ready to act according to all of his experiences, all of his perspective that the world has shaped him with. The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when the many fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Now just to address this almost humorous sounding test that they give the Ephraimites as they're crossing over. As this battle's going on, many of them are trying to flee back home and Gilead has, has secured the entrance into Ephraim and they're stopping anybody from going in because they know they're escaping from the battle. And so they say, I don't know, can you pronounce the SH sound? 
and they can't. There's some dialectic difference here that's going on, and so they take that as a way of identifying the Ephraimites. With Jephthah's vengeance, that he, he, he's looking for satisfaction. He's looking for justice, in a sense, here. He's looking for things to be made right. And when Ephraim comes up and attacks him with this idea, why didn't you call me out? Why didn't you have us come and help you? He says, no, that's, that's not, I didn't, we didn't need you. I took my life into my own hands, and the Lord gave the enemies into my hands. Everything's fine. We don't need you. And then he commences with the battle against him. So Jephthah looking for satisfaction, looking for justice against Ephraim's angry actions. This is actually what happened with Gideon, if you remember. When Gideon was done with his battle or towards the end of it, Ephraim came and said, why didn't you call us? And Gideon says, oh, you guys are so great. You didn't need to bother with us. And Ephraim says, yeah, you're right. We're good. Never mind. This time around, though, Jephthah is ready to doll out his, his own idea of vengeance. The negotiator puts away his pen and immediately picks up his sword. He leads Gilead to treat this tribe of Israel as worse than they even treated their own enemies. These are the people of God still. And his actions look a lot like those of the nations around Israel that acted violently against God's people. This is where that spiral is starting to spin even harder now towards the end because Jephthah doesn't actually save Israel. He brings more war to it. And we see a foreshadowing of the civil war that's going to end in, this, in the end of this book. So after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After Elon, after him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ijalon in the land of Zebulon. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. And that is the story of Jephthah in 68 verses. And what do we do with these last minor judges? Because the last time we saw minor judges pop up, they're minor judges because we don't get the full story, right? We don't get the whole idea of what's going on here. They're tacked on after some of the major judges are shown. Sometimes the minor judges are good examples. Other times they're left almost neutral, and that's what we kind of have here. We have Ibzan, who um, gave his daughters to marry other men in different tribes, which would have created some unity, but it's also a power play. Right? In this time, you give your daughters in marriage to people so that you can form alliances and strengthen yourself. Elon, the Zebulonite, he judged Israel for 10 years, and then he died. We don't know anything about him, so we can't really claim that he did anything good or bad. But then, verse 13, Abdon, what did he do? He had 40 sons, 30 grandsons. This is a sign of, of, of you know, a head that is wrapped up in royalty and wrapped up in a desire for ruling and for prominence. And they, he had them ride on 70 donkeys. I mean, you ride on a donkey because you want to show that you are important, that you are powerful. And so even, even here, this last minor judge is, is, is seemingly wrapped up in a power-hungry mindset, just as Jephthah, just as Abimelech before, and just as Gideon as well. So it's kind, of, it's kind of tricky here to understand what's going on, but what we see is that things are not getting any better. Even though Jephthah saved Israel from the hand of the Ammonites, there's still a downward spiral because there is no true king in Israel, and so everyone will continue to do what is right in their own eyes, as we'll read in a couple chapters. 
So towards the end of here, I'm reminded again of Jephthah's great phrase in verse 27 of chapter 11. The Lord, the judge, will decide. And he it is who draws all people to himself from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. He it is who came humbly riding on a donkey. Jesus did not come to show his power when he rode on a donkey, but he came to show that he was humble and that he was going to serve his people. He came into a city that he knew would crucify him. And his was the only sacrifice needed. We must put away any practice of harming others in the name of fulfilling a vow to the Lord. The Lord has brought the harm we deserve on Christ alone. We need to put away our thoughts of appeasing him as if he were any of the pagan gods that demand works to be appeased. He's the king of grace and he has come to become the sacrifice for us. All our good deeds are filthy rags before the Holy One. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, because that is your reasonable worship in light of what Jesus has done, not in order to earn what Jesus has done. And really, when we think about it that way, how can we not? When we see what Jesus has really done for us, how can we raise ourselves up and put ourselves on donkeys and act like we're someone important, but we'd rather humble ourselves and point to the God who has done a great thing through Jesus Christ on our behalf? But that kind of attitude can only come from a heart that has seen him and knows him personally, received his grace that is abounded and is greater than all our sins. So we're about to sing, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? There's a couple of reflection questions up here for you, just two easy, quick ones. What do I need to do to, what do I need to open my eyes? Well, sorry. What do I need to open my eyes to about God's character? What do I need to realize about God's character that I've neglected or that I don't understand? And secondly, how does the grace of the king bring evident change in my life? Do you see that? Do you recognize that you live your life differently than you did before, differently than the world around you? Can you see that his grace has had a strong effect in shaping how you understand the world? Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you in these many verses that you are faithful and you are good. You are just and you are kind. We thank you that you long to know us. We thank you that in our repentance, as we acknowledge who you are in humility regarding ourselves, as we put away the idols, the things that we look to to satisfy all of our needs, that you are ready to give grace. You want to give us grace. You want to show your kindness to us. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to understand you better. You would draw us close to yourself, that you would communicate your great love for us, that you do not look to us to provide something that you need, but we can look to you to provide everything that we need in Christ. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.